and welcome everyone to Inverticast. And I am Leah, of course, you know me from Tarantulia, and my co-host here, Nat, from Somerset Spiders. Hi. And we and we have Brian from Rubber Ducky Isopods. Yeah, I appreciate you guys uh, inviting me back for the second time. Uh, this is going to be, uh, you know, I feel like I'll, I'll have more polished answers for everybody, so I can offer uh, uh, a lot of uh, education for the time today. Oh, absolutely. And you, you haven't got the other added concentration of having to drive, which I think is... Uh, or my kids. They're not... Yeah, uh, or, or your kids. <laughs> um, so, yeah. No, thank you for joining us again. Uh, really looking forward to this. I know we've got a couple of people um, who follow the podcast who are really into isopods. So, Excellent. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it'd be really good to try and pick your brains about some stuff, especially maybe how it's done in the States. Um, but yeah cool thank you for coming <laughs> again thank you for inviting me and um you know i think more education that's out there the more people that understand that bioactive when it's done correctly means less work for for you if you're doing isopods if you're wanting to feed your reptiles or if you simply just want to take care of a vivarium that's considered like a closed loop system it all begins with the soil yeah yeah, I, I actually read read something really cool earlier just before coming on that, and I just like the terminology that that people can use uh, isopods as uh, rather than cleanup crew, they were calling them custodians, like custodians of your environment. I was like, that's a really cool kind of uh, yeah. They'll uh, they'll eat like an animal's defecation, uh, even mm -hmm. if the animal's shedding, they'll they'll eat that as well. They actually love that because it's uh, protein dense. Um, and then they can also be used as a food source. So there's a variety mm -hmm. of ways to use isopods. Uh, there's ones that are custodians and that goes all the way up to like, a, you know, the high end rubber duckies, which are considered designer isopods. Wicked. So, okay. My, my first question then, since you mentioned the designer isopods, what, what, specifically makes these kinds of isopods more popular or more sought after than other isopods and and also to add to that what is a designer isopod right sure yeah um for us a designer isopod is something that is going to usually be very rare it's a unique thing a lot of these are coming from uh like the caves of thailand malaysia vietnam so the fact that they're even here uh for for them to be considered a designer isopod usually means that not many people have them. Um, and then the breeding and, and the care and all that kind of stuff really goes into a designer isopod. That's where that price point comes in. You know, you could take care of some of these, uh, especially the higher end Cubara species, and it might take uh, two years, two and a half years to get a, a colony that's large enough for you to be able to bring to market. So there's a lot of patience with this kind of stuff as well. So we got uh, another guy popped on here. Yep. So, yep. So uh, just uh, quickly introduce. So everyone, this is Logan. He's only popping in for a little bit. He's another one of the hosts. He works in the background um, doing some things. But I think, uh, Logan, how are you doing? I'm actually doing pretty good. I'm at a birthday party right now. But, you know, I figured I'd jump on real quick and say what's up and uh, see what's going on, man. I'm, I love... Uh, I love any kind of invert, so you know me. I'm I'm definitely interested to hear from somebody that specializes in isopods. You know, I'm huge into bioactive work, and uh, you know that, that's super interesting to me. So definitely take some time to say what's up. 
Well, Drift, I think a good question for, for that would be um, how, why does the bioactive and isopods and stuff, why is that so fascinating for you? And same to you, Brian, like how is that so fascinating for you? Well, for me, um, especially because I, I focus more on breeding. So I'm, I'm part of a group here in the U.S., uh, the, the, the Sustainment Breeding Project. So what we're focusing on is all the endangered tarantulas that basically are on the ESA lists. Um, and uh, just trying to make sure that we can breed them to the best of our ability and make sure that the hobby is supplied. Because as you guys know, the United States is light years behind, you know, the U.K. when it comes to tarantulas. Should we go over to Brian? Brian, what what, do you, what were your thoughts of of that, of how they um, support the bioactive um, setups, our, our mini ecosystems that we set up? Yes. Um, so let me kind of explain my background. So And so yep. when we were first getting into stuff, building a, uh, a living soil is the same thing as bioactive. We were finding ways to improve on our soil systems instead of throwing them away. I'm seeing that also in the reptiles world where maybe somebody doesn't understand soil systems as best they should but once they understand that it's not really up to us anymore we're, we're using mother nature we're improving on mother nature she already figured this out eons ago so we're just finding out the best way to replicate that indoors and it's a lot easier obviously on a microscopic scale when you have a soil system that is improving week after week month after month so when Correct, we yeah. When we think of like a high-end bioactive setup, that's more than just using organic matter matter and saying that it's organic. It has to have life, in my opinion, to mm -hmm. be a bioactive setup, meaning that it has to have some kind of microbial life going through there. Composting worms. We like to use red wigglers, especially for the smaller setups. Uh, isopods, the springtails. We use rove beetles to make sure that there's no issues with fungus gnats, white flies, thrips, setting up a bioactive setup, in my opinion, is being proactive. Understanding this kind of stuff is going to improve. So we spend a little bit of money up front. And then uh, like Mr. Dirks uh, was mentioning, things get easier. So a bioactive setup should be improving. And if things are improving, then you know you're, you're headed in the right direction. I, I, I think one of the one of our the biggest fears within the um, within our community that say if we're keeping inverts such as tarantulas or reptiles um, one of the biggest fears is what those inverts such as isopods you hear horror stories which are still yet to be proven and, and i suppose it's thinking about the natural biome but for instance someone says um the isopods will eat their tarantulas let's say um and uh what, what are your thoughts what are your thoughts on that brian what are your thoughts on on how they might impact on the the more expensive animal that say that we put in there with them? No, I, th I think it matters what isopods you're using. So if I had like a, a small tarantula, you know, my experience is using jumping spiders. If I had a ton of large Porcelio labus dairy cows and that there was some kind of molting issue, supposedly that is where the that lore or that myth has come from that isopods are going to eat something that is living. That's not that's not what isopods are about. They actually love to break down decaying organic matter. So anytime that uh, something is living, if you see an isopod on that, you know, to this day, I've never seen that personally, but I have heard people talk about Me that. Me either. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a there's a gentleman that I rec that I uh, respect. I asked him because they say that about snakes as well. And it's also a molting issue. So if the, if the animal is having a molting issue and you're using a protein hungry isopod, there could potentially be an issue with that. 
But I don't think that that's um, there's any truth to a, a living isopod is going to eat anything living. Uh, I've never really seen that ever happen. I mean, isopods are kind of programmed, if you will. The babies, the mankay, are are meant to eat the adult poop. So from day one, they're just kind of breaking down organic matter into carbon. And carbon is is the money of the microbial world. So the more money that we have, everybody's riding around living large. That's why everybody wants to work in a symbiotic relationship with each other. Yeah. Well, well said. Well said. I, I couldn't agree with you more, really, when thinking about that, because I, I, you would think, as you said, if there is an issue with the molts, um, there's generally an issue. Let's say, let's talk about spiders, tarantulas at the moment, just for a second. There's usually an issue with the tarantula, so it's probably not going to make it, or it's probably ceased whilst molting out. You know, and and and, but like you said, there are ones that are after more protein, and if you've had a big um, explosion of isopods, it means you're keeping it really well. But um, it's about we're not just caring for the tarantula; we have to care for everything else that's living in that ecosystem to make sure that there's enough source of nutrients for them. Is it, do you think that's right, Brian, or do you think that's yeah, correct. And you have to remember too, Percellia labus, especially the dairy cow, milk bag. I mean, they're all kind of, that's all under that umbrella. They're so protein hungry that they want to eat each other. So if they're seeing some molting and there's a, an outbreak of this, what's really happened is the isopod breeder hasn't been feeding them enough protein so that they don't feel like they need to attack anything. Uh, they're going to, for the that most part. right there. Yeah. If you underfeed your isopods, they're going to look for other sources of food. Maybe your tarantula that's struggling to molt. But I feel like if you keep your isopods fed correctly and the bioactive setup is correct, they, they don't need to eat that. They're not fighting. Like you said, if they get hungry enough, they'll eat each other. You know, like, uh, of course they will. But um, I feel like if well, your setup a, is correct, you're good. That's a really great segue for uh, this next question on my mind is um, if, how many different like types of isopods are there? So I know there's a lot of species, but then uh, like there's the cubaris and the, uh, like you said, the the um, dairy like cows. Porcellas, por dairy cows. Yeah. Um, and magic potions or different kinds. Are they able to be like kept together? And if they do, would they hybridize? Uh, so like right next to me, I have my bearded dragon tank for my boys and I kind of experiment there. So I'll have dairy cows, caramels, milk bags. Those are all considered Porcellia labus. But the reality is, is that for whatever reason, the version of Porcellia labus dairy cow always outcompetes even its own technical species. So what I've seen is that if you're really trying to use isopods in a symbiotic relationship with one another, you want to use as if I'm going dairy cows, I'm going to let dairy cows kind of rule the roots because they're the alpha isopod. They kind of take up all the nutrients anyway. And then I'm going to use more of a dwarf species to kind of let them be more in that soil system. So the yep. dairy cows are going to be on top and then the dwarf species are going to work the, the actual soil system, working with the composting worms, working with the springtails. Now, if I were to add some high-end Cubaris, which is a huge umbrella term for all these fancy designer isopods, uh, if you talk to the people way smarter than me that do more of like the scientific names and all that, they say a lot of that might change. The Cubaris is kind of too broad, I guess. Uh, but for the time being, Cubaris just means high-end, uh, usually like rubber ducky-faced isopods from Thailand. And so if we were to put extremely slow breeding isopods like that with the dairy cows, they would be bullied 
uh, they would more than likely probably start to be eaten if, uh, if there was enough dairy cows. So I never put any high-end species with anything other than springtails and road beetles. Um, I, I usually won't even do um, like purple dwarfs. I'll do the white dwarfs because those are slower breeding. So okay. slow, slow breeding needs to go with slow breeding. High breeding can go with high breeding, especially if it's uh, being fed to a reptile. Wicked. Uh, can I uh, sort of segue on, off of that myself? Um, so we're talking about, you know, you, you mentioned them, the, the rubber duckies and they're getting a lot of publicity at the moment. Um, you know, they're very expensive uh, designer isopods, as we said, you know, high end. But is there any isopod that you think is amazing that actually just gets overlooked because people are after like the magic potions and all the pretty colored ones, the clown. Is there one that stands out for you, which you're, that you just really like keeping, Brian? Uh, well, when people ask for the rubber ducky, um, usually, unfortunately, those sell out, at, especially at shows. I mean, they're slow breeding, so I only have, you know, one or two per show. Uh, but there's something called the Pak Chung, uh, which is a pink-faced rubber ducky, underrated, I think. And it's something that actually is a little bit quicker to breed. So if you're thinking of rubber duckies, but you've already had success with Panda Kings, then I think going to that uh, Pak Chung is that nice little medium. And if you get those to breed, which is pretty easy, to be honest, as long as they have like cork bark and calcium and that kind of stuff. Uh, then, yeah, I would go on to the rubber duckies. And that's the lore of some of those super high-end designer ones is because there is a bit of an art to it. Uh, you need certain aspects to, to find success. And I will share uh, one of the gold bars that, that I have learned is that the reason why I'm using composting worms and springtails is because they create something called biofilm. And that biofilm is being moved through that soil system when I'm sleeping, when I'm awake. And that biofilm cannot be bought in a store. There's no product on earth that is better than that biofilm. And you can make that for free once you start to understand how Mother Nature works. Okay. And, and the biofilm feeds into that bioactive setup, I assume, and makes everything sort of like thrive? Um, it just takes it to the next level. I mean, imagine if, um, again, the biofilm is kind of like just that secret sauce of the microbial world. So mm -hmm. the super microfauna, the, the predatory mites even, there's something called a hypiosis miles that is extremely yeah. effective to a fungus gnat. So just making sure that everything is, is set up for the beneficials uh, allows them to kind of kick out anything that would be non-beneficial. So they don't, Mother Nature is pretty ruthless, especially down at that micro, microscopic level. So in, unless, you know, we're working together and we're being beneficial to one another, one of us is going to kick each other out of the tribe. And then, you know, you got to go figure that out on your own. So yeah. that's something else that I think not enough people understand when it comes to isopods that it, just because it's a, a dry, dirt, inert type thing, that doesn't mean bioactive. There's, there's actually something alive there and you forget to feed them. They can live off that biofilm, that bacteria, uh, nest, if need be. Not all of the isopods, but a lot of them, especially the ones from caves, I feel like uh, actually benefit more from a healthier biosystem than just some dry, inert sphagnum moss. So the biofilm that you're talking about, is that one of the layers of soil that you mentioned last week? Uh, it would be something that's built with composting worms. Um, you can actually kind of see it. Like if you if you order composting worms online, most of the time they're going to come like a light purple um, and there's not going to be a sheen or sh a shine to it. 
you put them in a composting bin, you let a couple of weeks, maybe a month go by, and you will see that those composting worms actually turn or start to turn a nice, dark, deep purple. Once they've achieved that, now when they're going through this soil system, you should think of that as kind of like the intestines of that soil system. It is the, you know, the second brain, if you will, like the stomach is the second brain of a human being. The soil system, when you're thinking of it this way, is that kind of brain. So we can take it to the next level if we want to add some plants. Plants give off what's known as exudates, the sugars of the cookies of what the microbial world wants. And then in some, you know, you need somebody way smarter than me to explain this kind of thing. The microbes are able to kind of dial this up as they're getting their cakes and their cookies. And, and so if the plant needs something, they're able to go and kind of mine that, if you will, find those minerals. So that biofilm allows that entire thing to kind of have the, the necessary ability to continue and thrive. There's no downtime with this. And the worms are constantly building this 24-7. So you don't even need that many worms to achieve that. And like an isopod bin that's about this big, talking maybe 10, 15 worms. And they'll self-regulate self their, their populations as well. With that in mind, um... One of uh, one of our other presenters who isn't here today was actually asked a really good question, and I would like to know the answer to it as well because I've got three different kinds of isopods that were gifted to me recently. How often, if ever, do you actually need to do like a, a partial substrate change, a full substrate change, or or do you not even have to at all? And then that kind of leads on to the the next question: is if if someone's starting, how, how would you say they should start? Uh, yeah, so I, I see a lot of information online that is saying that you have to change out your substrates. Um, I would imagine that is true if you're heavily feeding them and you don't have any kind of life to it because the isopods are breaking everything down. There's nobody kind of giving back. So with the composting worms, what's coming you know, out the rear end is always better than what they were putting in. So that's why things are constantly improving. So with a composting worm, our focus is just like how Mother Nature fig fig figured it out, is that we're using a top feed system where we're adding organic matter, we're adding leaves, we're adding wood bark to the top, and everything starts to break down over time. And so once everything is, you know, kind of what we call alive and thriving, there's no reason to ever uh, change out a substrate. That thing should be improving constantly. Just like out in Mother Nature, there's nobody out there churning the soil by, a, you know, especially a super healthy wood, wooded area. It's just the microbial life and the fact that the trees are, are dropping the leaves. The leaves are kind of the real secret sauce of the microbial world. So if we're able to harness that in all of our little tubs by constantly feeding them uh, leaves, I think people forget that. They go into all these supplements and all that. The main thing that they need in their diet is organic decomposing things, wood, that kind of stuff. The, the food is the breeding aspects, how to kind of take it to the next level. So if, you're, if you focus on what do they need, if, the, if I'm using Cubaris, where are they found? They're in Thailand, right? So I got to make sure that they have more calcium options than maybe some of the other uh, isopods. And that is the hard aspect of breeding isopods is almost every single tub, every single species needs its own kind of utopia and you're going to have to figure that out one of the easiest ways to kind of find that median balance is to focus on bioactive because most of them can survive or find a dry side if need be. so they might shift from uh because what i've 
been taught recently is you need to have a damp side and a dry side and they can self-regulate. But by from what you're saying, through this like trial and error, you'll be able to see where they sort of go, what kind of setup they need. And sort of going on from, from what you were saying about the substrate change, actually, we don't need to change it. We just need to add. So adding the the uh, material to break down the natural materials. I've also I've added some um, crickets, some killed crickets in there for like a bit of protein and things. And it's actually really interesting. Snake shed skin. I find my isopods love that. And uh, that's the case. Uh, from it. Chitin. So chitin yeah. is something that not enough people talk about. That's going to come from a lot mushrooms. of mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. I mean, mushrooms are on a whole nother level. Uh, the mycelium world works in a, in a crazy uh, symbiotic relationship with with isopods and absolutely. I, I, the best way I've even heard it described once mushrooms come into a soil system is that that soil system has gone from a dial up uh, network uh, to then once everything is alive and thriving with the fungal aspects, it is now a fiber optic network. And I think that right. is a fantastic way to view it because communication is key. The same Absolutely. way that you can make money in this world with understanding communication technology a little bit better than the average person, the faster yep. you build that stuff in the microbial world, it's the same thing. It's, it's kind of weird how easy um, building up these soil systems can be once you just kind of remove the ego and just let Mother Nature do it. I don't, I don't need to add fish flakes because Mother Nature figured it out without fish flakes. Right, right. Yeah, Mother Nature's not going around with a big blue tub of fish flakes being like, oh, we need to add some more, right? Right, add but you'll see people say that they got to replace their stuff. And in my opinion, they have to replace it because they're using too many of the fillers. With those fish flakes comes a lot of the yellow five, yellow six stuff. That's going to kill a lot of the uh, that microbial life. So the more organic you can keep it, in my opinion, I go all out. I make sure that anything that goes in there, even if I have to pay a little more, uh, everything is food grade ingredients for what we feed them, especially when it comes to the high end isopods and to keep things cheap, um, you know, to feed my children. I have three children. So when we go to Costco, we get the little shrimp. I let the, the children eat the shrimp part, obviously the protein, and then they give me the shells. I can crinkle up those shells, feed them to the dairy cows. And within just a few weeks, I'll have a population explosion. So there's a lot of ways to save money uh, by feeding these isopods, especially when you're talking about the, the and, feeder and, type. And by giving them, sorry, I, I think Leah was going to say something, but just very quickly, by by, by giving them that that uh, protein, say the, the the shrimp shells, that will in, induce a population increase of your collection. Is that? Well, it's not just even the protein. Again, it's that chitin. So the chitin is what kind of gives them the ability to be a little bit bigger than our competition. Why, uh, you know, why are the yellow zebras a little bit brighter than the competition? Because of chitin. And you can find that uh, in the insect crafts that you're using from crickets. Um, if I could kindly guide you into maybe even a better source, instead of yep. using crickets, use something called black soldier fly larvae. Uh, use that as a frass. That is kind of like the gold standard, if you will. It doesn't smell like crickets, and you're just going to find a higher yep. success, at least with isopods, if you choose to pay the. That's another example when I pay a little extra for, uh, like even for the frass or making the food, there's just something to using that black soldier fly larvae, whether I'm farming high end isopods. Yeah, uh, that's part of that secret sauce. We were talking about um, actually, if let, let's let's think about we've got little Johnny who's ten years old that wants to keep isopods. 
what do you think, Brian, would be the best way or maybe the best beginner isopod for this this little Johnny who's 10 to um, to keep to start? Because one bit one amazing thing about the invert world is when people start keeping them, they get hooked. And like it's 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 addictive. And I'm just wondering what you think would be a, a, a good place to start, how he would go around setting it up, getting it ready. Yeah, we um we get that question a lot actually so much that we are you know my wife and I created like a beginner kit um, and with those usually comes Porcelio scavers so you're talking more of like the orange Dalmatians Dalmatians those are uh, actually kind of comically almost like dairy cows easy to uh, get them to reproduce get the colony to take off. Uh, so you kind of explain to somebody that's new, usually if it's a child, I, you know, got to make sure that this, this is water. Uh, that's the main thing. You go out of town, you forget them. A week in an isopod's life is a long time. So kind of focusing on somebody realizing that, you know, if they go out of town for two weeks and they didn't water before they left, that's why, you know, their isopods are all dead. And so yeah. I would start out with something very basic. Uh, Dritz mentioned like the powder orange, powder blue. That's another one where you could probably leave for two weeks and they would still be okay. So a little bit of education from the isopods goes a long way when you're starting out. Um, a lot of people that are more, you know, they, they don't want something, they want something that's maybe a, a little more of a collector is called the Panda King. That's a Cubaris uh, that's considered like a lower end uh, designer isopod. And that breeds so fast that you'll, you know, children find success with that one as well. So it, it looks like a rubber really ducky. Beautiful one to look at as well, the Panda Kings, aren't they? Yeah, man. And I, I think that one maybe going back to that's another one that's maybe underrated because it looks uh, fairly like a rubber ducky. Uh, the price point is a lot cheaper than a rubber ducky, um, and it breeds so quick that most people, again, unless they forget the water, find success with that variety. And and we were talking earlier, weren't we, about like keeping it so there's like a little ecosystem. So keeping one end like quite moist, maybe with mop with I for for myself, I actually go out and get moss from the local woods, like away from the roads, things like that. And it's got a little bit of a bioactive in it already, a bit of the ecosystem. And I keep that end really moist. And then there's a more of a dry side with um bits of cork cork bark on on the other end and, and sort of doing that so um but they're really easy to look after right <laughs> that's that's what's what's what a brilliant thing is sorry Brian. Yeah, if they're not if they're not uh, highly like um the price point isn't high or yep. they're rare then yes they're usually pretty easy to take care of when you're talking about like a white rubber ducky or something like that um even red pack chungs at first. Uh, there's a, there's a, just a lot of uh, nuances to it, a little bit of skill. But the, at the end of the day, if you focus on organic matter and a healthy soil substrate, you're going to find success with most isopods, including the high end ones. Yeah. So, hey, so talking about beginning things, oh. um, like in you know, kind of beginner stuff. I I was actually curious as to what inspired your um, superfood that you made for the isopods. Yeah, um, you have a superfood that is just fabulous. It comes from failure, you know. Uh, like I had mentioned, <laughs> we we especially at the beginning, we thought that this was a lot easier than it was. So we bought these uh, uh, Thailand spikies, um, and okay. we spent a significant amount of money, a comical amount of money, on these things because we bought a bunch of them, and we were using um, some of the more 
you know, on the internet, what, what kind of food sources that, to use and that kind of stuff. And I noticed over time that these things were getting like sluggish and, and not as healthy and uh, a lot of uh, like weird, not healthy uh, fungus, like we had mentioned, but like when, when you're seeing mold and that kind of stuff from food, that's bad. If you're seeing mold and fungus from wood, that's good. So remember that kind of stuff. But when it was coming from that food source, now all of a sudden I had thrips and white flies. These things are vectors for disease. And it seemed like it wiped out the entire colony because I was using this kind of cheaper food source. You could even uh, add some water and it turns into a gelatin. I don't especially when you're using spending the money for high-end stuff. Again, I think the money is well spent when you're using food-grade things, stuff that the isopoda can kind of recognize as food already. There's not a filler. There's not some kind of gelatin making it fancy or whatever. Uh, so keeping it simple is extremely important for what, you, what you're getting at, Leah, is that um, – the food sources that we have, we have like, you know, three uh, different varieties of calcium, one of them even being coral calcium, which is extremely expensive. But because that coral is is part of kind of that crustacean ecosystem, it seems like they go for that. We, we also spend money on freeze dried. So we don't just uh, have a, a filler uh, with a vegetable. It's actually freeze dried. So it has the nutrients. I think that's also something that goes a long way. We're not trying to cut corners. Like some of the other, and these are more like the big box, big brands. Um, I'm not trying to like, you know, no. they're just they're just not what you would want them to be if you're if you're looking to breed the high end isopods. If you're just feeding that stuff to the dairy cows, it works great. Uh, but again, you're you're opening yourself up to a lot of vectors um, and white flies, thrips, fungus gnats. Those things are horrific if you've never experienced that before and it gets out of control. Um, it's going to be hard to manage that. What, what was the name of the beetle you said you used to control uh, fungus gnats again? Because I'm I'm interested in that. I, I've got some carnivorous plants, which I keep um, in in with my uh, invertebrates. Well, not in, but, you know, by the side and in pots. But what, what are the beetles that you use to? Yeah, it's called a rove beetle, R-O-V-E. Okay. And that is a tried and true thing. But you need, again, you need usually... It, Things have to work in a symbiotic relationship. The system. So if the rogue beetles are eating the adults, well, who's eating the baby larvae? Well, the rogue beetles are a little bit, but at the same time, we can use something called a hypiosis miles, or that's a predatory mite that again is tried and true that will actually go out and seek the fungus gnat larvae. So that's another way where you can combat mother nature by just kind of understanding how mother nature works. And then there's a uh, carnivorous plant. You might've been the, the monkey, uh, they're called monkey cubs or pitcher plants. Yeah. Uh, those are fantastic for also capturing a lot of the, the fungus gnats if things have gotten out of control. It's a better investment in my opinion than buying the yellow and the blue sticky traps because yeah. the plant is benefiting from that um, infestation. And, and the plant, like you said, is then feeding into the soil for like the whole ecosystem. So it's kind, it's very, it's very circular, isn't it? So it's all entwined. It sounds, sounds. Yeah, like you good. can, um, you can even use like uh, they're called sundews for for ones that would grow in the soil. And then yeah. the, the pitcher plants usually you hang up. Uh, they there is yeah. like a hanging plant, and those are going to be way more effective than spending money on the yellow sticky traps. Yeah, I, I've got the sundews, and uh, one of my friends actually grows uh, and sells pitcher plants. He's got four greenhouses, and he's made his own um, uh, hybrids and stuff, and they're fascinating. 
absolutely beautiful plants. Uh, how, how long have you been keeping and supplying the community with, with inverts, with isopods? And so how do we get, you know, how did, how was I able to get more people to care about what we are doing farming cannabis than all the other people out there that are also doing it? And for us, it was showing the microbial world. Like, all right, I started to see that people had an interest in isopods. And um, I then moved to Oklahoma. I was doing some cannabis consulting. That didn't work out for me. And then COVID happened. So I was sitting at the, the dinner table with my wife and I was trying to explain to her that I think people would buy isopods. And she kind of um, dismissed, kind of dismissed the whole thing at first. So I went back to the drawing board and I re, uh, researched, all right, what are some isopods that people collect? And that's when I discovered the rubber ducky isopod. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard of that before. I just knew about like the zebras and just a couple other ones. And then once I saw the rubber ducky, um, I don't know, man, from that point on, I was like, all right, I think this is going to be a thing. And then uh, I, I found the domain name. Nobody had even had the domain name. And I thought that was kind of like if I was going to sell tissues, nobody had Kleenex yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm very fortunate and grateful for that. Yeah. And uh, since then, just kind of on the, you know, on the grind of building a brand. And I'm now just using that to uh, get the isopods to be a little bit yeah. prettier than the competition. Super yeah, cool. That Super is cool. so cool, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to finish off with one last question, if that's okay. And uh, do you keep any other inverts other than isopods? Has it opened a gateway to other things for you, or is it just no, isopods? I, yeah, we're just on uh, isopods and springtails. Um, yeah. And I think the reason for that is, you know, my wife and I's goal is to be known as like the bioactive isopod company. And yep. to, to achieve a goal that lofty, uh, we have to just maintain and, and kind of stay in our lane. And I, think that that's, focus, yeah. I think a lot yeah. of people like that, too, when we go to the reptile places and they realize, hey, we're not going to be selling snakes as well. Or yeah, we're not yeah, trying yeah. to take we're, we're just trying to uh, do the best little isopod, you know, family owned business that, that we can. And for us, it's going to be eventually having hundreds of different species that we've been able to bring to market. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's I, I think that's really commendable as well. Like if you're focusing on one thing, that means you haven't got um, you haven't got praying mantis taking your attention, millipedes, tarantulas, all that you can focus all of your attention and energy on that. And I think when you're selling or it shows people are going to see that as well, aren't they? They, they, they? they see that you have that understanding. Um, so we're now at the end of the podcast. We're cutting a little bit short because I've got something to run off to in a minute. But um, Brian, is there anything you would like to plug? Um, anything you guys are doing? Um, anything coming up? Uh, yeah, well, we're we're always going to the the shows if they're if it's within like a day or two of a drive. We're there. That's how I've met uh, Leah, you know, probably six or seven times now, as uh, she's at the shows just as much as I am. Um, and each and every week on Wednesdays, I have a show where we talk about the soil stuff. Um, it's on the Future Cannabis Project. That is like a community platform. Um, so we kind of interview some of the best and brightest. If you want to go back, we've interviewed Jeff Lowenfels, Dr. Lane Ingham. I mean, there's just uh, a lot of bright-minded people on that. Um, and catch us on Instagram at Rubber Ducky uh, Isopods, uh, our website, rubberduckyisopods.com. We're adding a lot of stuff to the website. I literally just bought uh, 28 species yesterday, so we're excited oh, to uh, uh, bring some of those to market as well. Um, just always working behind the scenes, and um, I hope more people realize that bioactive 
if you if you're really breaking it down, means easier for you. Yeah, no, most abs ab absolutely. And I I think there was also something else you're doing, especially for a month. Was it on the for the for the podcast list podcast listeners? Yeah, we're using a twenty five percent off code. Um, you know, when most people come to me, they're just saying like, "Hey, can you do ten percent or something like that?" And to be honest, I don't, I don't. If I'm going to give a coupon code, I, I like to make it where you guys feel like I'm actually giving you something. So I'm making it for 25% off. Uh, if you guys are familiar with Rubber Ducky Isopods, we're pretty, you know, we don't haggle. You can, Leah can attest to that. Like when we're at the shows, it's not, this is the price. So when we do offer this kind of stuff, I hope that you guys see that it is a gift. Uh, we only even do uh, half off for Cyber Monday once a year. So these are going yeah. to be some of the lowest prices of the year. Uh, so 25% off for Inverticast, 25. Yeah, so that we'll, be... we'll link everything down in the comments as well. But thank you so much for doing that, um, Brian, for us. And, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, like, I, like I said, Logan, just wait for that to go live and then you'll be able to buy some isopods. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm gonna Thank definitely you, reach out to Brian. I got <laughs> I got like 25 questions we can't fit in this session here, so I'll be hitting you up, my friend. Very yeah, cool. Absolutely. I uh, I do the same. I spend a lot of time at his booth because <laughs> he's so smart. I love listening to this, and I love understanding the yeah. bioactive. You know, it's amazing. Logan, yeah, I'm sorry as, about as, that. As, as you are talking, Logan, is there anything that? you yourself that you wanted to promote maybe what your uh you know your, um, Facebook, your uh, transfer stuff yeah i mean uh, i'm not really just trying to promote anything other than just you know the the relationship of this community that we're all involved in you know um i don't actually per se you know i do i do my own business i sell tarantulas i do the whole thing i go to shows my brother runs the southern shows in alabama georgia tennessee and all that and i do the east coast and uh, we tag team he does snakes and reptiles and i do inverts um never really did isopods other than for the bioactive stuff that i'm working on and all that stuff but um you know it's a very bright future for this because honestly even though this has been going on for a long time it's it's one of those things like we are actually the pioneers of what's going on right now because there's so much that we don't understand you know and uh you know brian hey you got him uh you got it cool good stuff man i appreciate it thank you Brilliant. cheers logan and leah have you got anything you would like to promote today thank you for hosting most of today yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, obviously, rubber ducky isopods. I have always been super happy with what I have purchased from them. Um, they, you know, he, Brian and, and Natasha, they have also given me, you know, some some panda king isopods that are doing really well now. Um, I've had them for a little over a year, and they're just they're thriving, and it's fantastic and um, just awesome. And there, I have a really great rehousing video this week. Um, it's actually going to be kind of scary. <laughs> cool. Do you want to, what, 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 what tarantula is it? Uh, oh, it's, um, it's the Seriopagus levitum. So okay. yeah. it was, it was quite a spicy girl. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's a yeah. fun species to work with. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, 
I really hope that we're going to see Rubber Ducky start subscribing to all of our channels, just putting out there, Brian, you know. <laughs> and um, so for my shameless plug, thank you everyone for joining Inverticast, first of all. Uh, we've moved channels, so please subscribe if you're not already subscribed to the channel. Um, I am Nat, so I'm from Somerset Spiders, and we've, and we, I suppose it is with we, because I've got a voiceover guy. Um, we uh, have got a collaboration video that is starting at eight o'clock on Mr. Grindler's Creatures channel. Uh, so that oh, is in I've three seen minutes. Before, yeah. yeah, so that is in three minutes. And then the second part of the video will be on the Somerset Spiders channel. So it'd be really nice to see you guys there. Um, cool. Thank you so much, everyone, uh, for the show. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you very much, guys. Um, take it easy.